I come closer to uh, W.H. Auden's wonderful description of a professor. A professor, he once said, is somebody who talks in somebody else's sleep. Um, feel free. <laughs> um, coming after Ian Shugor is not easy. I mean, he has what must be a unique gift in uh, bureaucrats. Uh, my usual response to a bureaucrat is to say, why? But with Ian, you feel like saying, yes, sir. You know, it's... Uh, so to put that in perspective, let's start with prayer. I want to read to you my favorite prayer about the kinds of things that I do. I think you can relate to it as well. Almighty God, give us a deep curiosity about all of your creation. Move us to search and to question. Give us insight and understanding, a retentive memory and the patience to ponder and reflect. May we not stop short with knowledge, but proceed to the understanding of the heart and the wisdom to view the world with the eyes of faith. Point out the beginning, direct the progress, help the completion through Christ our Lord. Amen. That's Thomas Aquinas from the 12th century, for those of you who are wondering. Uh, and I love, I don't think there's a wasted word in there. What I want to try and do in the second session today is talk about what I think are some of the applications that we can draw from much that Ian had to say and that I'm going to say a bit more about uh, that might help us preserve the Christian family. Uh, I have no doubt at all that the family is, is central to the survival of any culture and the notion of family that the culture has puts limits on what can and cannot be done. One of the reasons that uh, I got interested in this flowed directly from my uh, research. I was privileged in the 1970s to live in Jamaica for five years. So were my children. They grew up in a nice environment. Um, I was there looking after 10-pound two-year-olds. Uh, working out the science of how to reverse malnutrition. The unit had been running since the 1950s. I was privileged to be there when the whole thing came together. And just before we left Jamaica, uh, in the year before we left, we went through 110-pound two-year-olds and saved every one. In other words, we had cracked the science. Uh, we knew what happened to the pathophysiology of these children when they became malnourished, and we'd learned how to reverse the process, which turned out to be counterintuitive, and there's still not a good description in a single North American textbook, which is amazing in 25 years. Um, so I expected to see malnutrition disappear in Africa. And every year in my uh, honors course in reading the biochemical literature, I used to, to give as an assignment uh, go and find a nutrition education project in sub-Saharan Africa that has worked. Uh, but the evaluation criteria must include the removal of all expatriate input for five years before evaluation. There aren't any. There hasn't been a successful program yet. Development does not work uh, in that context. And I began to think about that. Uh, we were bullied into going, at least I was bullied, the family wanted to go, but I was bullied into going to Africa in the late 80s to help a, a mission group with their malnutrition project. Now I knew the literature, I didn't expect to get a different response, 
Uh, I could train my children and they could do what I wanted and we could resuscitate malnourished children. Not as well as we did in Jamaica, we didn't have the same facilities, but very much better than anything they'd seen before. I could train an African to do it, but it only worked as long as I was there. Even within nine months away, I could measure the decline. You see, we often go to other cultures thinking that what we take with us is easily transferable. That is not true. It has underpinnings, it has foundations. Uh, and these foundations take a long while to put up. Uh, science doesn't grow on all cultural basis. If you look, for instance, you can't publish this as a paper because it's politically incorrect, but the World Bank publishes it regularly without knowing what it's doing. I tried to publish it as an explicit, explicit discussion point and couldn't do it. Um, I didn't put a great deal of effort into it anyway, I must confess. The paper's still lying around somewhere like several others that ought to be published and hasn't been. But if you, the, the World Bank uses malnutrition rates as a measure of development. Now, if you look by culture, and the World Bank will provide you with that data in its annual reports, you can actually get a linear regression. You can show a direct correlation. If you take cultures and divide them according to their degree of fatalism, and then plot that against malnutrition rates, I'm not talking about the malnutrition that occurs in war and famine. That would happen to anyone. There were no fat people in the German concentration camps. Take food away, everybody slims. It's just a question of how quick. Uh, some much faster than others, and there'll be a seminar in heaven on the great injustice of this phenomenon, you know. Uh, my body weight hasn't changed in 65, well, no, since I was matured, in 40 years. Uh, other people's uh, gain weight on next to nothing. That's true. Um, that's just the way God made it. I don't understand why. Some people have better regulating mechanisms than others. But malnutrition occurs in the presence of food. I can go into the worst, sub-Saharan Africa, one of the worst areas in the world for malnutrition, at the best time of year, the beginning of the dry season, the harvest is in, such as it is, there's food in the villages. But 5% of the children are malnourished, I don't need to take any food with me. And it's not that they don't love their children. That was the background that began to draw me into the whole issue of culture, faith, practice, and how they fit together. Now clearly, the nature of the family in our culture is changing quite dramatically. Imagine having Sunday lunch with your grandparents and explaining to them that Canada thinks that abortion is alright, we don't need any regulation, they can have it up to birth if they want to. Uh, that uh, sex before marriage is the norm, uh, we've got good contraceptives, it's not an issue. Uh, that homosexuality, uh, it's just another form of sexuality. Would you sell that easily to your grandparents? Of course not, not a hope. This has all happened in one lifetime, largely in the last half century. Now people struggle, what's happened in that time? What is it that has gone wrong? Uh, the sociologists, of course, with their physics envy, uh, are always trying to look at things they can measure, uh, which is a very silly move when you're talking about things that can't be measured. Uh, 
I hope that as Christians you recognize and say to other people every time the opportunity occurs that all the things that matter to me most are immeasurable in the scientific sense. Love, fidelity, honor, justice. Uh, these things cannot be measured by scientists. In fact, they have no material existence, do they? Science qua science has nothing to say about them. You cannot live without love and fidelity, not properly. Uh, what we need from science is to distinguish science and scientism. And currently Canada is still one of the silly countries that's in love with scientism. Science is very good as long as it's in its right place. I occasionally now on my travels meet people who knew me in my previous incarnation, so to speak, uh, uh, doing the kind of science that I did. And occasionally I get one of these lovely comments. Uh, they'll say, I don't know what's happened to you. We used to read your stuff, but you haven't produced anything I want to read for the last five to ten years. Have you gone irrational? And I say under my breath, thank you, Lord, for delivering them into my hands. Um, because I say, no, I haven't gone irrational and I can prove it to you. And then you have their interest. I say, well, what happened? What do you call somebody who is truly irrational? And of course, you call them mad, don't you? Crazy. Um, what happens to their life? Well, it falls apart, doesn't it? They lose their job, they lose their spouse, they lose their family. Now, when somebody gets converted, in your sense, becomes irrational, or is it irrational? What happens to their lives? Their spouses like the change? Yes, they do. Their children do better or worse? They do better. I mean, the single best indicator of a healthy family in North America today which no Minister of Health ever mentions, is a letter from your priest or pastor saying you're in church three Sundays out of four, at which point the total lifetime cost of your family drops to something like 25 to 30 percent of the national norm. That's not a bad deal, is it, when you think that smoking, giving it all up might drop our health cost by four percent if we're lucky. You only have to think about it. I'll leave you to think about why that is so. It's not magical. No. Getting converted is not irrational, it is supra-rational. Your understanding of rationality is only one subset of rationality. It's a post-enlightenment subset. There's a bigger story too, which is also rational. And within that bigger story, there's space for reductionistic science. But there's no space within Dawkins-type reductionistic science for faith. So which is the bigger of the two? Your problem is your world is too small. And I move on. Uh, you need to be able to take these opportunities as they come along. So sociologists, of course, are looking at things like institutional membership. It's declining, of course. The intellectual influence of Christianity, of course it's declining. And it's called, uh, Canada has its name because one of the founders came down from his quiet time to the conference and had been reading about God's kingdom stretching from shore to shore, hence the dominion of Canada. That's where it came from, right out of the Bible. Now, you can't quote the Bible in Parliament anymore. Why not? I don't know. Everybody acknowledges it contains wisdom, but maybe wisdom isn't wanted in Parliament. There's plenty of evidence of that. <laughs> People look at the functional influence of Christianity. And the problem is, of course, that, that when I'm traveling, medical students will say to me, we need Christian mentors. And then I 
get the list of doctors I know in that area from CMDS or CMDA and they say, him a Christian? I would never have guessed. In other words, most Christian doctors live what I call schizophrenic lives. They're too busy to integrate faith and practice as well as it could be done. Uh, the probability of integrating it is very low indeed. Losing faith, going to university, that's what it's for. Get used to the idea uh, and, and start preparing for it. Uh, sociologists also look at conversion rates. But that's not what really matters. What matters for the family is the whole nature of the narrative. This has already come up in Ian's talk. The words that are acceptable and meaningful to the society. Sin is one that isn't anymore. I occasionally say to medical students, you don't believe in sin, therefore confession is irrational, forgiveness is impossible, that's why you end up on tranquilizers, alcohol and antidepressants. Because that's the only solution you have to the reality that sin is real. I love saying in major liberal universities, the last one I did in was Minnesota, in the middle of the day, for two or three hundred academics and hangers-on, uh, a lecture on abortion. Uh, I'd say, stand up if you can defend the taking of an innocent human life apart from just war, self-defense and judicial execution. And nobody moves, ever. Even very smart people don't move, and they don't even give the very smart answer, which would be, I don't understand your question, because they do understand my question. And I say, well, that's a problem for me, because it seems to me you're, at least half of you are incoherent. Because if you're not innocent before you're born, you never will be. If it's not alive, you wouldn't be killing it. And it doesn't have the genome of some strange animal we don't know about. It's a unique human genome. What are you going to do about that? We need to push the envelope. Without, in other words, everybody does know what sin is. They know that it is wrong to do gratuitous harm to other people. Everybody knows that. And nobody can deny it. Just the same as everybody knows that friendship is good. There are things that we all know regardless of what we believe, all around the world. The best recent description of that has been in Jay Budziszewski's book, What We Can't Not Know, published by Spence. And if you don't do anything else from today's uh, outcome, if you get that book and read it, I would, it would have been worth my while coming. It's, he writes well, he knows what he's talking about, and he's experienced it. Budziszewski, uh, Bud Zizewski phonetically, uh, but go to uh, Spence on the web, uh, publishing, and you'll find it, What We Can't Not Know. Jay uh, was, grew up in a Christian home, as I did, uh, he was the Western lecturer at Augustine College last year. And by the way, by the way I hope you're all coming to this year's Western lecture uh, in March because it's uh, Calvin DeWitt, who's uh, an environmentalist and a Christian. Uh, very trendy things to talk about, but he's a very good guy. But Jay Budziszewski uh, lost his faith at university, uh, was hired at the University of Austin to develop a theory of government that did not require morality. Yeah, it's quite a thought, isn't it? He nearly committed suicide before he gave up because he realized if he succeeded, he'd have no grounds for loving his wife and his children. And he became a Christian. As he said, for a while he was probably the only professor of government with all the works of Thomas Aquinas on his shelf. 
he's now a natural lawyer. And the other sad thing for us as, as Protestants is that he recently joined the Catholic Church because he couldn't find people to talk to. That's frightening. We don't engage the life of the mind as we ought to. Um, but that book is well worth reading and it'll teach you how to present the argument and how not to present it and teach you how to draw people into the discussion, pre-evangelism if you like. Uh, and he needed to get back into the story that made sense of his life, which was a Christian story. Um, now, I'm going to do this in the way that it came to life for me in relation to malnourished children. Uh, after a year or two in Africa, uh, my wife, who fortunately is not here so I can say this, she's an activist and she's always trying to get me to be useful. It's a fairly uh, useless activity really because it rarely <laughs> succeeds. Um, but after a year or so in Africa, uh, visiting Africa each summer, my children were doing all the work and uh, I was sitting around doing nothing from her point of view. Um, I'd straightened out the paediatric ward one year and it was back to square one the next. Now I'm an academic, I don't do experiments I know the results of. Uh, and Sally wanted me to be saving lives. I said, well, no, we, we come here in the summers to try and understand this question. What I'm doing is thinking. And of course she said, looks to me as though you're doing nothing. And I, of course, said, that's what thinking looks like, you know. Uh, <laughs> But she did drag me into an important activity. She said, at least you can do a Bible study for the African graduates who are unemployed. There were African graduates in the area without work. And that hit me like a two-by-four over the head. Because if I've had you in my class for a while, you might be unpaid in the future. But hopefully I will send you away with a desire to read that can never be fulfilled in a lifetime. You will never be unemployed again. Uh, so I said yes. Now, God was at work in various ways in pulling various strands together. And one of the strands happened here in Ottawa. A few years ago we had a wonderful visit, uh, I think put on by St. George's if I remember rightly. Uh, Bruce Walkie came to town and gave a series of lectures on the covenant in the Old Testament. Now Bruce Walkie is one of the, the most wonderful scholars uh, in North America. He's a lovely man and he's a very good scholar and he's very, very interested in the Old Testament. Now in that lecture he said this, he said, if you ask an Orthodox Jew why is it that the Jews survived, he will tell you, read Deuteronomy 6. Now, I, of course, didn't know that Deuteronomy 6 was Deuteronomy 6, so to speak. I, in other words, I wasn't a chapter and verse guy on this one. Of course, when I got there, I knew it. Uh, but I had a lot of thinking to do. You see, it really is a miracle, isn't it, that the Jews survived. If we took you lovely Canadians to the airport and put you on a plane and flew you off some other place and you would never come back to Canada again, how long would your family be identifiable as Canadian? I mean, we're so nice and multicultural. Six weeks, you'd probably be something else, wouldn't you? But certainly not 2,000 years. But the Jews 
although they were minorities in powerful cultures, remained identifiable as Jews. And they will tell you it's Deuteronomy 6. So I started teaching Deuteronomy 6 in bad French. Fortunately, Sally speaks good French, uh, and so does Jonathan, so he was there on that occasion. So that was good. What was really exciting, however, was that I didn't have to do it in French for long, because an extraordinary thing happened. Uh, I had a translate, translator sent by dream. Never had a, a translator come by dream post before, but that's what happened. Uh, the Africans said, oh, what a pity we can't go directly from English to the tribal language. It would be so much quicker and you could do it for so many more people. I had a man who'd grown up in Tanzania speaking good English and Muslim and he became discontented with Islam, had a recurrent dream, much more profitable than Ian's dreams. Uh, <laughs> because the dream told him to go and talk to the Christians. And of course, as a Muslim, he resisted, but in the end, he gave in. He only needed to hear the gospel once. He knew it was true. He was converted and baptized. Shortly afterwards, he had another dream saying, go to Zaire. He packed his wife up and went, a thousand kilometers. When I asked him why, he said, because I would never have done that. He said, the first dream was so good, why wouldn't I obey the second? Would that we had that approach. Uh, he spoke good English, he became my translator over the next two or three years. Then subsequently, of course, he's been, he learned all my talks. <laughs> so now he teaches them in all the refugee camps in Tanzania. This is the way God works. So Deuteronomy was the first thing I taught him, uh, how to read it. Now, there's a, two other pieces of background you need before I go directly to Deuteronomy, which is what I want you to finish thinking about. Uh, the, the, the other pieces of information that were bothering me, one was a, a single sentence from an essay of Butterfield's on Isaac Newton. And it was this. Butterfield said, if Newton had not had his laws, if Newton had not had his God, he would not have gone looking for his laws. The idea that you need to believe in a law-driven universe to look for laws, because the surface of life is not like that. If you live in Central Africa at the moment and a good proportion of your children die before maturity, your crops fail at random, and you have just about the worst governments in the world, there's not too much evidence of a God of love, is there? Precious little, actually. Standing in the middle of a rainforest, they all believe in a creator, that he's way, way off. But we all need those questions that Ian used. Uh, I use a slightly different set, but we all have these existential questions. They have to be answered. And all the world's great religions answer them in slightly different ways. Central Africa answers them using animism. That causation is located in local evil spirits. And that makes complete sense of their world. In fact, it's a better immediate explanation than Christianity is. Evil spirits explain why your children die and next door doesn't, why your crops fail and next, next doors doesn't, etc., etc. But if you believe in evil spirits, then there's no reason an experiment done in Ottawa should give the same results as an experiment done in London. Different evil spirits, different results. There's no foundation upon which to build what we call scientific rationalism. It's not thinkable. Uh, and of course, we have increasingly in our world people whose thought patterns are not 
actually coherent even with science. That's why we're turning our universities into technical colleges. Technicians don't care about why it works, they just care that it does. Technique occurs in all societies. Science is a very rare phenomenon, the desire to understand in a different sort of way. Now that was missing in Africa, I knew that. Um, I'd also been reading uh, David Lindbergh's The Beginnings of Western Science, which is a beautiful book. Uh, it does a very honest uh, discussion of the whole problem, especially pointing out that it, the Enlightenment was a late event. The real events had occurred 12th, 13th, 14th century. That's what set it up. So the Enlightenment humanists teach a truncated history. The real one is much more interesting. So those things were in place. And of course, when I, I had one of the nurses I'd trained have his own child die of malnutrition, and I said to him, what on earth happened? And he wouldn't look at me. That was rubbing it in for me. He gave me the answer he knew I wanted. We didn't feed him properly. When I sent Karume to go and talk to him, he said, well, an evil spirit took the child's appetite away. Now, my response, of course, was, but if I fed your child, he'd get better. Yes, but you have a stronger spirit. You can't even get inside the story. It's a total explanation. They feared their environment, I didn't. They lived in fear of evil spirits, I didn't. Even those that are Christians still fear evil spirits in a way that we don't. We will shortly, we're moving back in that direction. So, how does Walkey and Deuteronomy fit into this story? Well, beautifully. And it's got a lot to say to us as evangelicals. If ever you have to give a commencement address, just use Deuteronomy. Yeah. Straight plagiarism would work wonderfully well. Uh, if you're really honest, you can acknowledge that Moses did it. But, but Deuteronomy is about how a society should live if it's going to flourish. That's what it's about. And the first thing that we need to recognize within the family and within our society as a whole is what Moses says in Deuteronomy 4, where he, he, he points out and reminds the Jews about their greatest possession. What in your family is the greatest possession you have? If you were asked to write that down, what would you write down? If you wanted to be really honest, you should write it down now so that you've got in front of you, not in the context of St. Paul's, but if you were asked on Friday in the middle of the day, what's your greatest possession, what would you have written down? It's worth writing it down to make you think. Moses is very clear. Let me read you his words. This is verse 5 of Deuteronomy 4. Surely, he says, I have taught you statutes and judgments just as the Lord my God commanded me that you should act according to them in the land which you go to possess. Therefore, be careful to observe them, for this is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes and say, very politically incorrect this, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what nation is there that has God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us for whatever reason we may call upon him? And what great nation is there that has such statutes and righteous judgments as are in all this law which I set before you this day? Only take heed to yourself and diligently keep yourself lest you forget memory. That says Moses is your key possession, your most important possession, the law. Now he goes on and says, 
Nevertheless, when you enter the land and you have vineyards you didn't plant, cisterns you did not dig, houses you did not build, possessions you did not make, very shortly you will describe yourself in terms of what you own, what you possess, what you do. Is that how Canadians think of themselves? It's the economy stupid? No, it's not. It's the story stupid. What story do you actually live in? Now, most Christians actually live in a post-enlightenment story. That's their problem. You only have to sit in a church committee meeting and see the real structure of it. There's no real sense that God is in charge. We think in terms of problem solving. God doesn't. He, th he thinks in terms of character formation and then the problems will be solved. Every criterion for leadership in the Bible, in the New Testament, in 1 Timothy 3, is a character trait. There are no skills. I used to think there was one, apt to teach. But that was when I was foolish enough to think that the Faculty of Education knew what it was doing. It's my most hated faculty. If I had my way, I would destroy it and Canada would start improving tomorrow. Because they think teaching is a skill and can therefore be taught. The teaching is not a skill. Teaching is the conjunction of two passions. Listen to what Moses says. These things shall be upon your heart and you shall teach them diligently to your children when you sit at table, when you rise up, when you lie down, when you go on a journey. See, teaching is a conjunction of two passions. You must love the law and you must love the children. That's why professional teachers can never do it in the same way unless they have those characteristics. What's wrong with daycare is very simple. If your wonderful professional daycare person doesn't see your child again from this evening, will they lose any sleep? Will you lose any sleep? That's the difference. And it is beyond the price of rubies. Now, my, one of my currently favorite American writers captures this in one beautiful sentence. How many Wendell Berry readers do we have? I always live in hope. How many people here have read a Wendell Berry novel? One. My daughter over there is another bound to have done. She didn't say she hasn't. Yeah, and a few others, but very few. But if you want to think about how a culture and a community is formed, Wendell Berry will help you. A wonderful novelist. The very first one in the series is called Watch With Me. It's a love story between a rather gawky farmer and the village teacher. It's at the beginning of the last century. The world was a different place. It's quite funny uh, and very wise. To give you some sense of how good a writer Wendell Berry is, he can give you the picture of a man in one sentence. He says of, of Ptolemy the farmer, Ptolemy was a big man whose clothes looked as though they had been taken by surprise 20 minutes after he put them on. You've got the picture immediately, haven't you? Miss Minnie, the teacher, on the other hand, was quite different. He doesn't describe her in that way. He says Miss Minnie went to teacher's college where she learned many cunning techniques which she never subsequently used because Miss Minnie loved children and she loved books and she taught by merely introducing the one to the other. That's what Deuteronomy 6 is about. Loving the book, loving the child, and introducing the one to the other. That's the heart of Jewish culture. Now, in the context of Deuteronomy, Moses inter inter intersperses something between that introduction and the bits in Deuteronomy 6 that I've introduced you to, and it's something evangelicals need to think about. 
he reminds them about their experience of God at Mount Sinai. Now, I'm brash enough to reckon that none of you had a conversion experience that came close to having God speak the Ten Commandments accompanied by a volcano, thunder and lightning and smoke and cloud, right? Uh, now, but you probably, like the children of Israel, said, we will obey. And like them, you have disobeyed, right? We all do. In other words, the experience of God did not serve to make the children of Israel good. What it did do is take away their free will about God. Nobody was there at Mount Sinai could ever afterwards say, I don't believe there's a God. That was over. The reason I think that we don't have these overwhelming experiences is precisely because of the project God has you and I in. You see, we're in a love story and we forget that. Can you force someone to love you? Of course you can't. That has all sorts of ugly names attached to it. But God is in a high-risk project. He wants, he's got enough angels. They've seen God. They can't deny his existence. We haven't. We can. He wants us to love him. And the real question is, have you had enough flowers left on the doorstep of your life? Is there enough evidence that you're loved from beyond yourself? That's why God doesn't show up in your family and friends despite your prayers. Because he wants them to love him. And we play a role in that, modeling that love to a degree. Most of us are loved into the church. Many of us are not in the church because of the absence of love from Christians. Living within the story, living within the narrative. That's what's at issue here. What coming to contact with God does is change your reality system. Once it's happened, you can't deny that God came. Now the work begins. Amazingly, in Anglican churches, for instance, I can get away with something like this. I will say, why were the epistles written? Well, most of them are already asleep, but the odd few that aren't look up and none of them offer an answer. Uh, that probably would happen at St. Paul's too, I don't know. But they were written for practical reasons, because the church screwed up regularly. Uh, you know, you could say Corinthians was about sexual uh, misbehavior. A man was sleeping with his mother. The Galatians was about uh, church deacons who were so stuffy they were turning the church into a well-ordered graveyard. Uh, that Thessalonians was about a church that had people who said, Jesus is coming again, I don't need to take anything responsible seriously. Uh, I don't need to work. In each case, Paul's solution was a chunk of theology properly applied would lead to the same ethical injunctions. So he will summarize like this, he will say, if you have followed my argument, you ought to be not like the people around you, you ought to be transformed by the renewal of your feelings. Now, not enough of you are reacting at the moment, but well, some of you are, yes, but not enough. I mean, what I've done basically is only a trivial thing. I've trashed the history of the Western world in one sentence, and some of you don't know about it. Uh, because, you see, Paul didn't say that. And nowhere does he say anything like that. He says, you are to be transformed by the renewal of your mind. We can't do anything about our feelings. They come from who knows where. We can control them, but we can't induce them. If you sing happy songs for 20 minutes, you'll get a happy song feeling. 
and it lasts as long as happy song feelings last, you know, a few milliseconds. If you turn your mind to think seriously about the scriptures, I mean, if your pastor expands the scriptures vigorously, how do you normally feel at the end of that? Do you feel good? Not in my case. Often I feel terrible. I think that's what pastors are supposed to do, make us feel terrible. Uh, because we have been invaded by truth, and that's a rare phenomenon. You feel good when you are obedient. <laughs> Not necessarily straight away. That's in God's hands. He will provide that feeling when he judges that you need it. Uh, after all, at a deep level, I think God doesn't feel. He doesn't feel love. He is love. He's inside love all the while. He's also inside righteous anger all the while. And we're headed towards something like that, I think. But there's no question about the instructions in the New Testament. You are to think differently. Now, how do you set up a framework of thought? Well, that's what Deuteronomy 6 is about. When your son asks you for the reasons, for the rituals, for the things that we do, it is your duty not to give him a lecture, not to impose parental authority and say, we are going to do this today, but to tell him a story. If he says, I don't want to go to church, it's boring, you don't say, get in the car. Well, you do say that, I know, but that's not the best answer. <laughs> what he says is, tell him the story. We were slaves in Egypt. God rescued us, brought us through the desert, into the promised land. Tell that faith story right up to your own family's faith story. And then you say, don't you think we should give an hour or two a week to worship a God like that? Now, up to the age of seven, they're honest enough to say yes. After that, they start rationalizing. Some of my children were better at deconstructive rationalizing than the others. Uh, that makes life more difficult. You have to think about it. But the way it's done is by the telling of the stories. Now, if you ask an Orthodox Jew, he will say that it is the duty of an Orthodox Jewish father to teach all the stories of the Old Testament to his children before the age of seven from his mouth. Do you think they have any problem remembering them? No, he has a lot of problem finding the time to do it. Do you know what the average contact time is between North American parents and children today, per day? Taking away directive speech. All the do this, don't do that, do this, that doesn't count. How much narrative time is there in the family's day? Well, it's less than five minutes. No time for storytelling. Now, when Bruce Walkie introduced me to all this, and I started thinking about it, a year or two later, I had the great pleasure of being at a conference in which he and I were paired in the same session. And I said to him, they're going to get Bruce Walkie twice, once the real thing and once plagiarized. <laughs> uh, but he, he, he was very gracious and he said, I haven't thought about it this way because I thought about it as a, a pediatrician. Now, I like watching children. Uh, I find them absolutely, I can sit, I don't need to do anything, just watch them, they're, they're fun to watch. And I like, my wife is, it should be my job to read, but I love watching other people read to children, partly because I get impatient with reading children's stories. But I'll ask you a question. What is the difference between the response of a seven-year-old to the question, would you like a story, and the response of an under five? Now, while you're thinking about it, I'll tell you my answer, watch your faces, and I'll know whether you read to children. The seven-year-old will bring you the book she's in the middle of and will, will milk you for as many chapters as you will read, right? But the under five goes straight to the cupboard and brings you a book. 
No, you've read it before. And if you're like me, you get bored easily. You try and shorten it. <laughs> Most of you read to children. Read it properly! The little brat has brought you a book he knows every word of. <laughs> so why does he want you to read it? That's what I couldn't understand. And I think what's happening is we're looking a bit of God's hard wiring. God has hardwired children to believe that the stories that are repeated in their early life tell them the answer to one of Ian's questions. How should we live? That's children are hardwired for that. This is where they get their character and their ethics from. See, when you, you confront issues later on in life, you don't analyze what's good, what's evil in this situation. You know. And you act. 99.9% .9 of the time. And I think you know by reference to these stories. Now, I've probably used up my time, have I? No, David says, those of you who think I have can leave. It's all right. I won't be much longer. I haven't got a watch, you see. I don't like the things. I like going to Africa where they say, put your watch away, even if you have one. God gave watches to Americans and time to Africans. Isn't that lovely? <laughs> but this issue is vitally important. And I think children actually are so hardwired, they are going to get their repeated stories from somewhere. Now some of these lovely illustrated books that are for children nowadays are not all good. Some of them are very bad. Now if the main story is in place, they'll handle it. But if they're the only stories they're getting, it's disastrous. Now, what's the repeated story in the lives of most American children, North American children? If the contact time with their parents is five minutes a day, where do they get the repeated story from? Television, yes. Which bit of television? Commercials, that's right. That's the repeated bit. Now, if you don't believe me, you can do this. How many of you teach Sunday school to, to seven, eight-year-olds, that sort of age? Or at least one or two. Do this experiment. Go home, pollute your mind, and watch television for a bit, and make a list of commercials. Uh, just some clues to them. Then give them some clues to major Bible stories. Simple things like, who spent a night in a whale's belly, who was born in a manger? And make two columns of questions. And see whether the seven and eight-year-olds do better with advertising than they do with the Bible. I know the answer. They'll do much better with advertising. You can probably, some of you, remember the jingles when you were a child. They don't do it for nothing. They know how powerfully they can imprint on your mind. Now, what virtues do you learn from television jingles? You learn that covetousness is good, that drunkenness is not bad, that sexual license is not bad, that materialism is good. These are not Christian virtues. And we complain when children start killing one another for a pair of shoes. That's what we've taught them with television jingles. Get what you want. Now, the whole point about the Bible stories, the Bible, especially the Jewish stories, it's the only non-revisionist history in the world. And from page one, it's morally consequential. And Ian was so kind to the patriarchs. Aren't they a bunch of losers, I mean, in many ways? I mean, would anybody buy a used car from Jacob? Uh, only a fool, you know. 
And Joseph, you know, talk about a spoiled brat and a prig, you know. And he never got over it. I mean, he was Egyptianized. Do you note that when Jacob met him, he did not weep? When he met Esau, he wept. When he met Joseph, he didn't. Because he looked at Joseph and he saw an Egyptianized man. He was thinking in Egyptian categories. Medicine does that to us. Uh, medicine is a, a process of Josephization, if you like. You're full of yourself and with the wrong categories. Much of our university education does that. But the Bible is morally consequential. Everything that's done is permanent, isn't it? You can be forgiven, but the consequences are not removed. Uh, the Bible is not a no-fault life. It's a completely fault life. You are forgiven, but moral consequence in this age remains. The only thing you can do with your sins is give them back to God and he'll use them, which is very good for you because there's no pride involved. If you feel called to help people with a problem you've never struggled with, you should start helping people with hypocrisy. Uh, that's, what, that's your real guidance to the world around you. Now, the stories are morally consequential. And when the Bible stories are, are deep down in a society, the society speaks to one another in richer ways than they realize. I use a couple of examples that I always use because I like them. And those of you who've heard me do this before can just go to sleep for a minute or two. Uh, how many of you know what the last telegram allegedly sent from Dunkirk to London was? How many of you heard me do this? Oh, not many. One. Well, Shane Wood, yeah. So you're silent. It was just three words. Beaches of Dunkirk to London as the Brits were trying to get across the channel. But if not, how many of you can solve it? It arrived in London, was immediately understood, and you all know it. And it's biblical. How many more clues do you need? Well, it goes like this. Be it known unto you, King Nebuchadnezzar, our God is able to save us from the fiery furnace, but if not, we will not bend the knee. What a magnificent telegram to send, but how much more magnificent that it was immediately understood. Why? Because up until the 1960s, Children in Britain, at least, I, for instance, had a 20-minute chapel service throughout the whole of my high school education. Chapter from the Bible, a prayer, a psalm, a couple of hymns, every morning. Now, at the end of 12 years of education, you've heard all the Bible stories at a time when you have a mind like a steel trap for those things. What that does is give you the reference material for making moral decisions. You cannot make your children Christian, but if you soak them in the Bible stories, they will have case histories for every moral situation they meet, or almost every one, and even where they don't have the explicit one, the principles will be there for them. One other, this time slightly modified from English literature, there's a poem that has the line, Standing Amid the Alien Corn, written, I think, in the 18th century, 17th, 18th century. Now, David knows it. I mean, he taught literature forever, so, you know, he, he was probably there in the 17th century. No, no, I'll quite <laughs> um, How many of you know? One or two. And again, you all know it. See, in just five words, is it Keats? I think it's Keats, isn't it? Yeah. Um, he, could, he knew that the people reading that, that poem 
would have the whole story of Ruth. Ruth, the refugee from a foreign land with her widowed mother-in-law, coming back to Israel, so poor they had to re rely on the gleaning laws of Israel for survival, but standing in the field was Boaz, the kinsman redeemer, the picture of Christ. All that in five words. That's a rich language. All languages are not interchangeable. All cultures are not equal, they're different. They have strengths, they have weaknesses. But multiculturalism is ridiculous in the radical sense. Respect, yes, but then you've got to discuss which one is the richer, which one does the better job. I'm very, very grateful that Gregory the Great dealt with paganism in Britain, otherwise I might have been painting myself blue and I'd be dead at 45. You know, I, I don't think that's cultural imperialism. I'm delighted that it happened. Uh, that's what's at issue here. Father's job to see that his children hear all the stories of the Bible from his mouth before the age of seven. Now Moses knows about it. So he has a little throwaway line, a second chance. Teach them to your children and your grandchildren. We have 14 of those now, so we have lots of opportunity that uh, I don't make as much use of as I should. Like all academics, you can sit down and work out the principles and then you need a bureaucrat to do it. Um, but I hope what I've had to say has given you some questions. That you recognize that we all live inside a narrative, but unfortunately many Christians live in a narrative that cannot by any stretch of the imagination be called Christian. We're in deep, deep trouble. You look around, medicine is full of it. All this plague of stupid plastic surgery. In these are, and fashion. What is it? It's not a biblical story, is it? I mean, God has written one message into every cell in your body. And that message is, die. The only question is when it will be triggered. Uh, don't get fussed about your body. Wrinkles are beautiful and you've got a new body coming anyway. Live inside a better story.